I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Hey, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. It has been so great to uh, get your feedback and to hear that a bunch of you are listening and enjoying this and sharing it with people. You know, when we started it, Seth, I kind of wondered, you know, I find this stuff interesting. Obviously, you find this stuff interesting. It's it's kind of neat that there's actually a few other people that find this interesting. There are multiple people who find this interesting. <laughs> multiple dozens of people. Beyond our parents. Beyond our parents, yeah. I don't even know if my parents have listened to this. Do they know about it? I'm not sure. I've not been great at promoting... <laughs> Or self-promoting. Mommy, mommy, look at this thing I did. Do you think they would like it? I think they would like (laughs) that that it seems like I'm having fun. I think that was a no. They'd go, we're happy for you, Seth. Way to go, man. Yeah, kind of like they didn't like coming to my t-ball games when I would strike out in t-ball. They didn't like that either. I think they appreciated (laughs) me doing things. You didn't really strike out in T-ball, did you? No, but I was very bad. <laughs> was that because you were having I struck out allergic metaphorically. reactions to the grass? It was a metaphorical strikeout in T-ball. You may not know this, ladies and gentlemen, but Seth Trout is actually afra- not afraid. He's allergic of grass. I am. Allergic to grass, yeah. not of grass. Especially those summer varieties. Yeah. So that made T-ball, he was more of an indoorsy sport guy. Anyway, we digress. So today... We're kind of turning the page. We had talked about um, epistemology, knowledge of God, knowledge of the world, knowledge of self. Today, we're beginning another multi-part kind of mini-series on this King and Culture podcast uh, where we're looking at how to evaluate cultures. So that's kind of what each of the next few episodes are going to be related to, evaluating cultures. So I guess the first question I have, Seth, is why why this? Why does this matter? Why would we want to talk about this? What difference would it make if we evaluated cultures? Is this matter this is the whole reason we started the podcast we wanted to talk about cultures we wanted to evaluate them think about them um, critically positively negatively how do they line up with scripture where do they line up with scripture um, what room is there for difference differences in cultures that are not necessarily holy or unholy but they're just different and even the the title of this episode cult and culture what we're gonna try and get at is how they're at the root of the word culture is the idea of cult that there's a religious root even in the word, but also in the function, that there's not just this neutral cultural development. Some people want to see all cultures as just blank or um, just socially derived. But I think biblically we want to understand that there's a religious heart at the center of these things. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to evaluate cultures, we first need to understand the biblical place for them in general. And, and also how do you look at them in their particular natures? And what are humans meant to do as far as it relates to culture? Because I grew up, and I don't know if this is different for you, Hearing culture is only a negative word. Mm. There was the culture. Sure. And then there was us. What's funny, because um, growing up going to church, but not really being that much engaged in the church culture, it never was talked about. Like, it wasn't like, ooh, the culture bad, or ooh, the culture good. It was just, it it didn't even come up. Yeah. Well, I hear all the time, you know, the culture says... But the Bible says, and so the culture is always as highly negative. And there's a lot of negative, unbiblical, unholy things. Yeah, even even our little, you know, tongue-in-cheek subtitle of critiquing the hell out of culture yeah. is assuming more of the negative side of that than, than just the positive. Yeah, there are no cultures that are universally good until Jesus comes back. That's just a reality. Yeah. And so the heart of this first podcast, this first episode, this first discussion we want to have is all about 
how did that happen? Why did that happen? And how so, do we think about it at 10,000 foot? So big picture of the next few episodes is evaluating cultures. Today is cult and cults and cultures. Now, when you think cults, most people, what probably jumps in their heads is someone knocking at their door, dressed funny, trying to hand them a track with, you know, a, a kind of mistranslated Bible verses on it. Yeah, you think some type of polygamist, separatist, you know, suicide club, uh, <laughs> right, where, yeah. where you're all going to get together and yeah. bring to the end of the world, which really is just the end of yourself. And, and of course, those are, I mean, that's not an inappropriate use of the word cults. Yeah. But when we're talking here cults, we're talking about it more in a kind of classic religious sense. Um, so so t- talk about that. Yeah, we think of cult as... Most people, though, define cult in, like, popular usage, which is not false. That a cult is, like, a very close-knit religious community where if you separate from them, you're ostracized. So, uh, like, if you defect into uh, heresy or you default from the orthodoxy that the cult says or you or you critique the leader or you don't go line up with the leader and everything, when you leave, you're cut off, you're excluded, you're not invited. A lot of people have that experience in various current cults of Christianity. Uh, so they're not, they're Christian yeah. cults, I would call them. Um, whether like Jehovah's Witnesses, especially like Christological heresy cults, uh, that if you don't toe the line, then you're out and you don't see them anymore. And it's see you later. But historically, and I even I understand there's like a, a religious technical term, the idea of cult, and it's just system of religious devotion. Mm, yeah. Right, and so that is an so we hear the word cult and we hear it pejoratively or with a negative assumption, uh, kind of like you like you could talk about leader versus bossy, right? Sure. Bossy is yeah. pejorative. There's yeah. loaded negativity. Yeah. So we hear the word cult and hear it pejoratively, loaded with negativity. But for this purpose, we're not going to use it pejoratively, but we're going to use it neutrally. Like cult is just a system of religious devotion directed towards a particular object or belief or figure. And so in that sense, all people belong to a cult. Sure. Right. There is a system of religious or heartfelt or assumed um, axiomatic devotion that is like their first principles that give them and help them make sense of the world and right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so whether you are decidedly religious in the spiritualistic sense or decidedly non-religious in like the naturalistic sense, there's a cult to which you belong that has some form of orthodoxy, that has some form of heresy that necessarily makes you included or excluded from the group you're trying to be a part of. Yeah, so in that sense, everyone is is cultic. Everyone is religious. Everyone has core commitments that they think everyone else should believe or hold to. Even yeah. if they think those core commitments are, you should be able to believe whatever you want, that's also a commitment of some sort. And so we're looking at cults, and culture, it's interesting, when, even when you think about culture, and you were talking about how, you know, that, that was used for you growing up in mostly this negative sense, culture. Um, it's striking to me when I um, kind of have studied theology that there's there's something in Genesis 1 that's before we get to sin that's called the cultural mandate. Yeah. The cultural mandate. And so that's striking because you go, huh, if culture's bad, ooh, bad, it must be after Genesis 3, but no, it's in Genesis 1. So cultural mandate, what's the cultural mandate? A cultural mandate is the way the form tradition refers to the command given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. So I'm just going to read it, and it's really loaded into four key words. So Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them, and he said to them, so this is God's law, is a blessing. Uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. So those big 
ones are um, multiplication, filling, subduction, and dominion. And they kind of come in pairs. Fruitful, multiply, um, filling, go together, which has to do explicitly with the family unit, the nuclear family, Hmm. husband, wife, children, multiply yourselves, fruitfulness. That would have been certainly having to do with procreation. Humans make more humans. And so right off the bat, we see that the foundation of culture is the family unit. Hmm. It doesn't yeah. begin anywhere else. It begins in the household unit. And this would have been, you know, the idea of the nuclear family that we have is a pretty post-industrial idea. Like there's one generation under a house, right. husband, wife, kids. So even though that that idea of family would have been more extended family, like kind of uh, probably at least grandparents, but also maybe multiple generations of kids under one house. So you kind of have that deal. There still is like the family unit as the epicenter and starting point of all culture. And so that's kind of important for us to talk about. We can't really talk about culture and not talk about families and households and Mm -hmm. husbands and wives and children. So any kind of assessment or direction or thought process that relates to cultures and cultural critique and cultures that are healthy or cultures that are unhealthy, somehow that has to be tied to in our vision for the family Mm. and marriage. So fruitful multiply, that's part one. And part two is subduing and having dominion, which is decidedly vocational or productive. Mm -hmm. So this has to do with uh, seeing, so let me get in those two words, subdue. uh, That's a word that is used multiple times in um, other ancient Near Eastern texts. Uh, Like one of the ways you could see that word is it's used in the context of kneading bread. So you are massaging Hmm. the bread. Kneading with a K. Kneading with a K, yeah. You are, it's force Hmm. that is creative. Hmm. Yeah. Right, it's creative force. So. You're subduing the dough. Yeah, you're subduing the dough. Another way it's used is of a field. The plow subdues the field. So creative force. Hmm. There is uncovering, there's disrupting, there is breaking up, but it is serving the land. It's causing productivity through force. Another way is um, the feet are subduing the grapes Hmm. in creation of wine. Yeah. So there's crushing, extracting juice. And so, so the word subdue has to do with creative force. Okay. It's the ability to exert a will onto an inanimate object and to make it something better and more useful than it was previously. In economic terms, this is the creation of goods and services. You know, so which is part of culture. Part of culture, yeah. The so that's that's the decidedly creative part. Um, the next part is dominion, which has to do with the authority. Dominion's a kingly word. God has dominion, kings have dominion. It's a word of sovereignty, which has to do with the right. Hmm. A lot of times we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about uh, his control, the details of life, but it's actually misuse of the word sovereignty. That's actually a doctrine of providence. Mm. Doctrine of sovereignty is the his kingly authority to do what he wants. He has the right to do what he wants. Yeah, providence has to do with the ability. Mm. Yeah, um, Sovereignty has to do with the right of God to rule and reign. And so when he gives humans dominion, he is delegating authority. And he's delegating the right. So God is taking his authority over the earth and he's giving it to him, to humans. Hmm. And he's saying that creative force of subduction and subduing over fields and bread and grapes and to produce, I'm giving you the ability, subdue, and the right dominion hmm. to make culture, to take the blank field and to turn it into harvest, to 
you know, take the sand and turn it into glass to, yeah, to mine the depths of the earth, to take the tree, turn it into tar, to, you know, take the cotton, turn it into clothes, all of those things. So there's both the right and the ability that God gives humans in the beginning. That's the cultural mandate. Yeah. What's amazing to me, even just in its really simplest form is it doesn't say, you know, Genesis 128 and God blessed them and God said to them, stand around me and sing. Yeah. You know, I think we sometimes imagine that that's probably what it would be like in a sinless world as we would just be worshiping God all the time. And of course we would, but we would be worshiping God, not through standing around singing to him, but through being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over the fish of the sea. And of course, writing songs and making trees into guitars and, um, you know, creating lyrics, that's all part of that, that culture. So I don't want to say that, you know, those aren't opposed to each other, but it just strikes me how, um, you know, this is going to accomplish some stuff in the world. And that is part of God's good design for culture. Yeah. It's important that we understand that this was, goes hand in hand with the image of God. So there's a lot of discussion about what is the image of God? What do humans have that apes don't have? What do humans have that giraffes don't have? What do humans have? Because humans are the image of God. Everything is creation, but humans are the image representative. And when God says, um, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, and therefore, you could translate that, Therefore, that they will have dominion. Hmm. So to be in God's image has to do with the dignity and the ability to create and produce. Yeah, It's part and parcel with what it means to be human, is to be a producer of culture. Culture is what humans make of the world. It's the blank slate made into something else. It's the grass, it's the, un, it's the, uh, the meadow turned into a field. It's yeah. the dirt lot turned into... Uh, harvest. Well, this isn't the main point of this conversation, but I think it is worth just pausing and saying, this is why we believe that work is inherently good. Yeah. Work is not a curse. Um, work has been cursed because of sin, but it's inherently good. Um, we would be working in a sinless creation. We will be working in a sinless recreation. Work is inherently a good part of God's creation because it helps create and, and uh, maintain this culture of God-honoring uh, humanity. Yeah. And so this ability to produce, this is the cultural mandate that we are commanded by God to reproduce ourselves in families, husband and wife, and we're commanded as families and as people to together exercise dominion. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, this is a communal task. At a minimum, it's Adam and Eve, but it's also those who are in Adam, the people Adam, humanity, yeah. right? So that are called to together be culture makers. So culture making is a both an individual work. I participate, and but it's more than that. It's a it's a they together. Mm. I mean, yeah. you you can't be fruitful and multiply by yourself, <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah. Point taken. Point taken. Yeah, I know how that works. Yeah. Uh, likewise, you can't subdue and have dominion by yourself. So you're never making culture in a vacuum. You're always making it in a culture you're born into and into an environment you're born into and with the people that are around you. So we all are participating in culture making together. So what we're, I think driving toward here is to say, as we evaluate culture, culture itself is not inherently bad. Um, we're going to be creating culture and we can create it in ways that are God honoring and good. We can create it in ways that are selfish and, and 
wicked. We can. Yeah, it's critical that we see that the the arc of the story of Scripture goes and progresses from a garden to a city. Hmm. That when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, it's a city, New Jerusalem. It's not back to the garden. It's not back to the undeveloped. It's not tear down all the buildings, but it's uh, all that is broken and evil is wiped away, but there remains a city of God, yeah. right? So, so the thrust of going from gardens to cities is part of the developmental structure of Christian history. And even before Christianity became the norm, a cyclical view of history rather than a linear view of history dominated the world. So people did not invest in institutions. People did not develop long-term views of culture or of society because it was thought that you just restarted all the time. But it was when Christianity came along and had a vision for the future that was a city, the city of God, and so that we can build institutions and develop cultures that last beyond us, and that's a good thing, passing on things to our gen- to people far beyond us. Uh, so it was actually a Christian view of the developmental part of image of God that has made Western society what it is. And now that we live in a globalized reality, everyone kind of has this liberal view of progress that we're going to march forward, making the world better. And the aspects of that, which are true, it's not all true. You know, we don't make the, we're not going to bring about utopia through good deeds and good ideas and good intentions. That's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. But there is a sense in which we can progress along with history and develop cultures that uh, mature and progress in good ways. And the aspects of that, that's true. All of that is actually stolen by secular culture or secular worldviews from the Christian view of what humans are called to be doing, which is building, developing, and progressing, and adding to the things that have come before us. So every culture is inherently, we've said, then religious, right? Um, Just the way we're hardwired, having been created by God, is to create culture. Um, When sin comes, our motives get distorted, our abilities get distorted, our morals get distorted, everything about us gets distorted, we're not as bad as we could be, but we're as bad off as we could be. That's kind of our doctrine of total depravity. Um, and so cultures start forming, and some aspects of those cultures are good, and some aspects of those cultures are bad, but they all have kind of a religious root. Yeah, and what we see right off the bat in the story of Genesis is Adam and Eve rebel. They turn from God. They choose the self-law, autonomy, which autonomous, self-lawing. They Rather than having their dominion be delegated to them by God, they assume a dominion that's not delegated by God, and it's a, de- a dominion independent of God. So they don't stop subduing, but their dominion takes different shape. Now the right for them to create culture is not being delegated to them by God, but it's just their own desire to do things. We see this um, play out right away that they were supposed to be partners in this task, but Adam and Eve begin to blame each other for their sin. They also they blame Satan which is a whole separate situation, right? Um, Then what happens is their offspring fight and separate. So there's no longer a partnership, but there's separation. And now immediately you already have two cultures, right? Mm. Because they're doing it over there and they're doing it over there. Some of which God allows to create diversity among the earth, but also there's kind of like God working all things together for a good situation in that. Mm. But then what you get to eventually is Genesis 9, we have the Tower of Babel, which you have... Uh, people say um, the opposite of what they were supposed to do. Or in particular, it's Genesis 11. I mean, I misspoke there. Where now people are still trying to subdue and make culture, but they're doing so um, in the opposite direction of what God had called them to do. 
So it says people migrated to the east, found a land, they settled there, and they said, come less, makes bricks, and burn them thoroughly. They made bricks for stone. So they're subduing. They're doing the work of, sub, of yeah. subduing the earth. Part one. Ooh, good. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing it. They're building it. And then they said, let us build for ourselves. So it's not for God. They're not about spreading the image of God over the earth, but they're, now they're building it for themselves with a tower, with its top in the heavens. They're going to kind of make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So God had told them, fill the earth, you're the image of God, fill the whole earth, the image of God. So do and have dominion under me, be fruitful and multiply. And they go, we're going to do the part of that, the subduing, but we're not going to do it under your authority. We're going to do it for our own glory, for our own sake. We're going to make much of ourselves. And so they right off the bat continue in their culture making task but they do so in a disordered way. Mm. So this is what, again, there's a guy named Al Walters wrote a book called Creation Regain. He talks about structure and direction. The structure of cultures is good. This is the work of making bricks, subduing, having dominion, plowing fields, crushing grapes, making wine. That's a structure. But the direction is the heart of worship, which comes with it. Am I doing this for the sake of love of neighbor and make, giving glory to God? Or am I doing this for my own namesake? in my own glory? Am I trying to avoid God's calling? A lot of technology nowadays is produced to avoid God's calling. Uh, and we could get into all the details of that. Sure. Technology and technologism. But so much of what is going on here is they're developing technology to avoid God's call to fill and subdue the earth. And we don't need to spread out over the whole earth. If we just make a tower big enough, we can all fit in it. Yeah. And so the, the cult part of this then is more about that direction than it is the... Um, what was the first part? Structure. So the structure and direction. So the, the the cult is they're forming a culture based off of a commitment to themselves. Yeah. And to their own name and to their own glory and to their own, which sounds, man, that sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like, this, we haven't changed that much. You know, yeah. we go, man, it's, gosh, it's 2020. Well, we're not past that one. Yeah. Well, a big part of what I think the biblical authors do all the time is they tell you a true story that really happened and that true story is meant to also be every story. Mm, yeah. Right. So what they're doing here in Genesis 11 is they're trading the cult of Yahweh. That is the worship and adoration and admonition of God most high. We're here given dignity by God, nothing to earn, no one to impress. And we choose instead the cult of self, self-worship. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves the word ourselves, ourselves, us, us, is repeated. It's emphatic. And this is just like so much of our culture all over the earth, not just Western culture, uh, that it's the cult of self or the cult of false, false gods. Later on, you have the Israelites um, bowing down to gold statues of cattle, which we think sounds so dumb, <laughs> those primitive foolish people. Right, and I can't help but think about what people in the future look back at us, like, look at those golden calf worshippers. What a bunch of Neanderthals, mm. right? And so, so we this this drive towards the cult of self is what Reformed tradition calls antithesis. So, think about the word antithetical or antagonistic or against. It is the demonic principalities that are there to persuade and assuade us into self worship and false god worship. It's this desire at the heart of so many cultures to just promote a false view of what it means to be human, what is real, and what the purpose and dignity of the world and what it means to live in that is. So that's what I think Paul's getting at when he talks about principalities and powers, especially in Ephesians 6. 
is that they are animating and providing um, spiritual power and spiritual energy toward the development of cultures that are driven away from God and driven toward self, whether that self be, you know, pursuing child sacrifice with the Canaanites or with modern day abortion, or whether that uh, pursuit of self be about building a tower or building a brand for yourself on social media, whatever the case might be, anything that is uh, connected to that. It doesn't mean necessarily you're personally like filled with a demon or something, but there's a sense in which the, that culture that you're building that's driven by yourself is shaped and animated by these powers and principalities. Yeah. We think that so much of what it means to be duped by demons, like we kind of have in our minds, like there's like these little dark Halloween figures that Mm -hmm. kind of sneakily get in you and take over your heart, mind, soul. And there's an aspect in which you see that in the new Testament. So I don't want to minimize that, but I think a big part of what Paul's getting at, like in Ephesians six, I'm just going to read this season six, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then what ends up talking about is the armor of God, talking about the shield of truth and the way that we're called to stand against the lies of using the faith and the salvation and like we were like God's truth versus um, false realities. And so these powers, authorities, rulers are reinforced what we call ideological or idolatrous cultural values or cultural beliefs. And so we can't really consider our even personal struggle with sin apart from the antithetical idolatrous culture that we're embedded in. Like try talking to a teenager about sexual purity when you have, you know, Tove Lowe writing songs that say, do what you want with my body, use it up till it's gone. That there's a doctrine that bodies are just usable, uh, disposable pleasure centers. And so that doctrine is anti-God, it's demonic, and it's being reinforced throughout cultural voices. But it's not just that it's a doctrine, but it's also done so in a way that builds and stirs the affections, that that seems like a fun and good group to be a part of. So I want to be part of that group, and if I want to be part of that group, I have to bow down at that altar and so I want to be part of what those people are doing. So there's like the FOMO, fear of missing out thing that's yeah. driving part of this idol worship. And then not only that, you have the technological structures where someone can be rapidly and on all the time exposed to sexualized images of themselves and others. And so the individual struggle with sin is part and parcel with this broader demonic worldview that says your body is of no value apart from providing sexual pleasure to other people. And so that is what we call the antithesis, the cult of self, the cult in the culture. It's not just, and so this is why it's frustrating to me when people critique things in culture like fashion and music, because it's just the on the surface, easy to look at. You just did. Yeah, I'm using the doctrine <laughs> behind the the doctrine behind the music. Okay, but I mean, there's like the look at the way they dance, look at the way they dress. Yeah, look at how low that shirt is, how short those shorts are. But that's what, when you're talking about like what actually makes a culture, that's like the very tip of the iceberg that's above mm. the water, mm. that the deep structures of culture are what it means to be human, the purpose and goal of humanity, 
and what it means to exist in this world and what the goal of existing in this world is. So critiquing like the length of shorts and how much of like people are showing their bodies or whatever is basically like the lazy person's way. Like, ah, can you believe what kids these days are wearing? (laughs) Like that's, that's the laziest way to engage cultures because really want to go like what is going on in people's minds that projecting your body in such a way that it grabs males attention and that that is your source of dignity and value and that having that attention is what makes you worth existing and that your own assessment of your worthiness of existing is what really matters. So like those are what we call like the deep structures of culture. And it's actually those deep beliefs about what it means to be human and what it means to exist under God's authority. When this, this all gives me a, a bit of sympathy really for people who um, would talk about the culture in mostly negative terms. I mean, because there is a sense in which we're going, Hey, as soon as sin, sin enters the world, Genesis 11 is going, the tower of Babel is a major problem. And every culture influenced by demonic powers and principalities that are getting you to just think about yourself. That's a major problem. Again, it doesn't mean it's all bad. It doesn't mean every part of it is bad. We can't throw it all out. But, um, but yeah, like this is a sense in which you go, you know, everything's built on an anti-God pro self foundation. This is why, I mean, this kind of gets into something that I know is a bit of a pet peeve for me. And I think for you too, is, um, one of the, one of the trickiest things about this is, um, in kind of culture today, there is this sense of that there's a sec that secular equals neutral. Yes. Right. There's religious people and then there's neutral secular people. But what this says is go, no, no one's neutral. There is no neutral, neutral secular thing. Secularism is built on a certain kind of cult and, um, other sorts of ideologies are built on those same, on different things, but the same kind of problem. Yeah. There's a whole school of thought that goes, people should be able to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. But then in order to talk about that, you have to define what is harm, who gets to decide what is harm and who gets to decide what's harm for other people. And so in order to do that, you have to start talking about what does it mean to be human, right? Is discipline harm is self-restraint harm is so I was, we talked about this, uh, the other week I'm doing a, did a class on political ideologies and we talked about, uh, you know, should the government be allowed to make you wear something on your body that you don't want to wear? And if you ask that question in the context of masks, you know, <laughs> at least people out here in Arizona are like, absolutely not. So then I talk about topless laws in New York city. <laughs> it's like, Oh, never mind, <laughs> Right. Because, yeah. I want to be free from being harmed by being exposed to nudity that I don't want to see. But you want to be free from being harmed by being forced to wear a shirt you don't want to wear. So whose harm counts? Mm. Or even the case of like motorcycle helmet laws. I want to be free from having to sit with your wife and kids after you decide not to wear a helmet on a motorcycle. I want to be free from being at the scene of the accident when you decide not to wear a helmet and you want to be free from having to wear a helmet. So whose harm is greater? My risk of having been exposed to you after you weren't wearing a helmet and got in a car accident or your harm of being forced by the government to wear something you want to wear. Yeah. And however you answer that question is going to be based on a set of assumptions of what matters most, who, you know, who gets to say it's all based on some, some core beliefs. Yeah. And when you have a Christian understanding that 
you know, there are private parts of your body, then the harm principle of, as it applies to nudity laws, sorts out pretty quick. Yeah. Right? Sure. It is harm to be exposed to nudity you didn't want to see that's not your spouse. That is harm you. And it is harmful to be seen by someone who's not your spouse in that context of nudity. And so uh, this whole idea of a culture and these cultures' values and these cultures' laws are rooted in a sense of what humans are for. And if you want to answer the question of what humans are for, you have to talk about uh, religion. You have to talk about a vision. You have to talk about um, who defines humanity and who doesn't. And so secular culture wants to have so-called facts in the public square and values privatized at home. But to answer the question, what counts as harm, you have to start talking about values, so-called, which I think Christianity is not just values, but it's facts, mm. right? But the secular culture want to try to talk about how belief in Jesus rise from the dead is a value that's not a fact. Um, but if we want to live in a society that has a culture that's shaped by Scripture, and so I, I would say that not all cultures have at their heart like an inherently demonic resistance against God, because a lot of cultures have had people who love Jesus trying to make and improve upon and do good things with parts of these cultures. So I would take like, um, you know, all people are created equal. In, sure. in like, yeah, I, I see that a lot with kind of modern, you know, modern secularism is kind of riding the coattails of a, of a largely Judeo-Christian culture, right? The desire for everyone to have human rights is comes out of culture shaped by Christianity. And so now people go, why? I still want that. I just don't want, you know, it's, it's, I want the, the kingdom without the king sort yeah. of a thing. And so, yeah, it, we are right now a kind of mixture of all of it, right? Like we're a mixture of these demonic powers and principalities that have shaped culture. We're a mixture of um, Christian people who have had lots of power and influence over culture at different points. And we're a kind of weird stew right now. I think it feels probably to a lot of people like we're whatever was shaped by Jesus and the Bible is, is quickly drifting. Um, and there's a lot of lament about that and rightly so. Um, so, and it really kind of depends which part of the culture you're looking at, where are you standing from? What are you comparing it to? Cause it's easy to stand in our current culture moment and compare it to the new heavens and new earth and just see all bad. Right. But you could also look at our current cultural moment and compare it to various things 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 100, 200 years ago, say, hey, we're doing better, right? Yeah. There are things that are improving, things are getting worse. And that mostly has to do with people who are at least shaped by God investing in the public square. So this, so this idea of antithesis or the doctrine of antithesis is talking about the ways in which we are constructing Babylon, that is cities that are opposed to God's rule that are based on self-law, that we're doing that all the time that every culture without exception has an element of antithesis in it. We would call that the ways in which the demonic principalities are reigning and ruling over this present darkness. That most of what Paul is talking about when he's describing demonic influence is these idolatrous false cults of worship, whether they're related to celebrities or otherwise. And he used the phrase earlier of animating, like spirits animate us, right? Even you think about, when you talk about alcohol or booze, it's a spirit. There's a sense in which you take it in and it makes you act and feel different. Mm -hmm, sure. Right? So the spirit is animating you, right? Likewise, the spirit of God moves us. And even the word spirit could be translated the word wind sometimes in different contexts. And we think about how 
Uh, you see the trees move, and it's because the wind is moving them. You don't see the wind, but you see the movement and the effect of those. And this idea of uh, the spirits moving the things you can't see, the Spirit of God moves us in a variety of ways, and that's a really important reality. But there's also false spirits or false demonic worldviews where they move things in a variety of ways as well. And it's important that we understand that uh, when we think about celebrity or the cult of celebrity is another thing they talk about. Yeah, it's interesting. There's one of the w- weird places where you'll hear that word cult. Yeah, the cult of celebrity. It's obsession with a person and wanting to be like them. And so let's use an example. Who has the most Instagram followers in the world right now? Selena Gomez, Kim Kardashian, <laughs> someone like that? Uh, let's check with our producer. Probably, probably Selena Gomez. Don't look them up. I don't think you need to see their Instagrams. <laughs> but anyway, so let's, let's say it's Kim Kardashian, right? There's a sense in which... You gaze at the celebrity, right? And the spirit of that celebrity affects your desires Mm -hmm. and wants. You start to want to dress like she dresses. You start to want to do things that she does. You start to want the attention that she has. And so almost like what we look at, what we see, um, the spirit of the celebrity affects us and changes us and shapes us. And we start to be shaped into the image of that celebrity. And so that is how cultures and the cult of personality shape cultures all the time. Is celebrities are major culture makers. And that's how we think about a lot of these celebrities is they are the culture makers in the world. They are reinforcing and they're creating wakes of people who are, like I think about that, I saw something that Justin Bieber was wearing like two years ago. And I thought, that guy looks so dumb. And I thought, I'm probably going to dress like him in 10 years because that's what <laughs> happens, right? You see you see, like the people on the front end of the fashion world and you're like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? And then it's like normal yeah. 10, 15 years later. I have no plans on doing that, but <laughs> that that's kind of how it ends up So going. more sweatpants, is that kind of what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, baggy sweatpants. Can't wait to preach in baggy sweatpants and slides. It'll be good. So, but this, the cult of personality shapes culture and shapes followers. The contrasting way of that, we think about resisting, so that's the antithesis, the, the anti-spirit. Right, the, the demonic spirit is shaping affection for that which is not God, wanting us to build societies based on jealousy and gazing at celebrities that are grabbing our heart. The contrary side of that would be the true and greater celebrity who is Jesus, mm. gazing at him, seeing him in the scriptures, wanting to be like him, and his spirit animating us, working in our hearts to change our desires and affections, to want what he wants, to be like he is, to treat people like he treats people. And they're actually, we are, made into his image, that we are transformed in his image and healed as image bearers again. And when we do that, we're actually part of creating, and we can actually engage in our work and our family relationships and our ongoing day-to-day life in a way that we are now making culture again like Adam was supposed to, that we get to actually participate in the original creation mandate to, um, culture, to make culture in a way that honors the Lord. And so when we see Christ as the true and greater celebrity who's shaping us that we want to be like, that we want... Uh, to be connected to his spirit works in us contrary to the, the demonic principalities. And there's a true and greater spirit working in our heart and mind to shape our affections. So we then become mm-hmm. culture makers in a new way. And that's creates an anti-culture or a counterculture that we get to be creators of pockets of culture. Cause there's not a, the culture, right. there's a lot of different pockets and windows and gaps. It's not a big monolithic thing, but so much of what it means to be a Christian in that sense is to be faithful culture makers even if it's just, again, in my household, in my relationships, and in my small workplace. This isn't a really a call to try to transform all of society, but it's a call to try to be faithful in the sphere that I've been given. 
Yeah, so maybe it's less how do I transform society and how do I be transformed in society? Yes. Uh, not by society, but uh, transformed in the midst of it and then shine the light of Christ out through it. I, you know, as you're talking the whole time, I'm, I'm just reminded of 2 Corinthians 3. In verse 18, it says, We all with unveiled face beholding, that is looking at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I remember in college, I think uh, my pastor preached a sermon on that text where he said, beholding is becoming. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, you you behold uh, Kardashian or Gomez or Bieber or whoever else, you'll become more like that. You behold Jesus, you'll become more like him. Yeah, and this this reality is that we tend to want to see concrete examples. So in Hebrews 13, it talks about imitating the faith of your leaders and so there is, this is part of the reason that leaders are going to be judged more strictly is that they are called to be people who can be imitated. And we do that imperfectly. And so predominantly we're modeling how to repent, <laughs> Yep. not just modeling how to do that. But this is the idea that when we begin to imitate faithful examples, we begin to make pockets of culture that represent the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. And so it is far more about being faithful in your sphere than it is about trying to change so-called society because there's not a the society. There's not a the culture, but it's actually creating pockets of faithfulness and trying to create spaces that feel like the kingdom of God, that we're being fruitful and multiplying, so doing and having dominion in a way that's in line with God's heart, not to build a tower like Babel, but to actually be a part of unfolding the infolded goodness of creation that God has called us to develop and move towards. And so that's kind of what we talk about here on staff. We talk about the best gift we bring is our transformed, transforming presence. Because if the goal is to transform society, then we'll very often let the ends justify the means. But if the goal is to be faithful, then it's more about trusting God of the outcome and trying to be a culture maker in my sphere, in my pocket, in my, in my, in my area of, of the world. And so different Christians will have different platforms to do that, right? Like you think about uh, when celebrities get converted, there's a pressure on them mm-hmm. that I think mostly is evil right? Paul talks about being slow and laying on hands, mm-hmm. but we tend to hear about someone's converted on Monday and on Tuesday. You're like, can you speak at our men's conference? <laughs> I think that's totally unfair for the, to them and for the kingdom. Yeah. Um, but I hope that as folks are listening to this, we recognize that there's a religious root at the heart of cultures, and they're all called to be these transformed, transforming presences, aware of the antithetical nature of so much of our cultural values, but we have the ability to participate when God told Adam and Eve to do, which is be fruitful and multiply, subdue and have dominion, because God has called us to. And so we all are culture makers, not just victims of culture, not separating from culture, not just critiquing culture, but actually making culture as a way of being a kingdom counterculture that's pushing against Babylon wherever it exists. So next time we're going to be able to talk about how um, there actually is insight from secular cultures, right? Like we've said, it's not all bad. There's lots to learn. And we can benefit from that as well. So, uh, Seth, thanks for your conversation here on this. Any uh, final thoughts? Nope. All right, then. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. If you have uh, someone that you think would benefit from this conversation, share it with them. If also you could leave some sort of rating or review on iTunes. I know you hear that when you listen to podcasts. Not some sort of rating, a good rating and a good review. Yeah, well, right. Or you can critique the heart of this podcast. That's fine, too. <laughs> That's fine, too. But yeah, if you would do that, that would be great. Um, again, we're sharing this mostly for our Redemption Church family. But if you know folks beyond that who would benefit, that's cool, too. So uh, that's it. Seth, appreciate you, man. Appreciate you. See you next time. Bye.